hello and welcome to the Jewish's podcast. I realize my mic might be picking up the sound of my mouse as I'm scrolling because I'm using a new mouse, which I also realize my keys are super loud too. Sorry about that. Hopefully it's not too bothersome. Um, welcome to the first episode of 2021. I know this is probably going to be posted pretty late on a Friday, so fingers crossed people still listen to this one. I know it's difficult. Um, I'm so excited to be in the new year. I'm posting new podcast episodes. I'm working on becoming more and more consistent. And I also have some very exciting news. If you enjoy listening to me in podcast form, I am starting a second one. My best friend uh, Mackenzie and I are coming together and creating a book club podcast. Um, for those of you who don't know, I am a huge reader of both fiction and nonfiction. Obviously, I read a lot for this podcast and the blog in general. But uh, you've already heard Kenzie before if you listened to the Twilight episode that I posted for Halloween. But Mackenzie and I both love to read specifically fiction and a lot of those really popular book talk books. So we're coming together to create the I-10 podcast uh, book club. And so it's super exciting and it's going to be available on all the podcast platforms that you know and love. Currently, we only have a trailer out, but the more you listen to the trailer, uh, the better it is for the podcast. And you can also get a little feel of what it's going to be like. Um, our first podcast episode is going to be about Twilight, which you've already seen us cover the movies and the books, but this is specifically talking about just the very first book. So I won't rant too much about it, but of course, the link will be in the description of this podcast. And I'm just so excited about it because I... I put a ton of work into these ones, specifically into these podcasts, into these blogs. It's so research heavy. And it's nice to just kind of have a reprieve where I can talk about things that I love and be a little bit more casual without having such an intense script like I have here. So I'm so excited to announce that. For those of you who don't know, I read 100 books last year and I'm working on reading a 200 this year. So you can definitely follow there to keep up. There's also an Instagram and a Twitter and a TikTok. So uh, if you, for other housekeeping, if you're not following the Jewish's Instagram, which I think most of you are, you absolutely should. I've been posting a lot of content on there. Plus, we just hurt, hit 33,000 followers, so that's so exciting. And I think that's everything. I think that's it. So we can just dive right into divination. I want to make a make it very clear before we really get into it. This is just a primer. This is a preface. This is an introductory discussion, as I think I called it, uh, for the original blog post. The reason I say it like that is because I'm not going to cover the nitty gritty of every single divination method. I'm really going to go over just a couple perspectives on a couple different kinds. This isn't even covering all of the kinds of divination. For example, I'm going to bring up two more that I don't even mention in the blog post, but I'm going to talk about them because I like it um, and I want to. So. I want to make that very clear. This is not a all-encompassing, in-depth episode talking about each specific divination method, though one day maybe I can do that if someone's interested. But for now, this is just an introduction. So let's just dive in. To quote, who is wise? He who foresees the results of his deeds. Tamid 32a. In one of my first blog posts, Can You Even Be a Jewish Witch?, I address many points brought up in the discussions of witchcraft and halacha, or halacha, depending on how you pronounce it. In the months since I've posted it, I have received hundreds of comments asking to further discuss divination and its place within Judaism, and truthfully, I have avoided it, as it is such a long and complex topic. However, today I'm going to give a short, non-comprehensive primer in the general discussions of divination within Judaism. 
Frequently, we see these discussions of divination resulting in the belief that it is strictly forbidden. But the reality, just like everything in Judaism, is far more complex. As you all know, two Jews, three million opinions. And this does, in many ways, answer the question of what does Judaism believe about? Insert topic. According to Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis, the author of Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism, which is a fantastic book that I do recommend, there were three kinds of divination practiced in ancient Judaism. Serendipitous omens, impetrated omens, and mediumistic divination. The first consists of reading and, interpret- and interpreting um, omens and prodigies in naturally occurring phenomena, such as weather, abnormal births, or astral signs. The second practice consists of asking questions by means of divinatory devices, such as casting lots or reading entrails. And the third involves the consulting of a human oracle or divine forces channeled through a person, such as prophecy. Specific acts of divination were eventually translated um, and they became part of a sweeping declaration of div- against divination that clashed horribly with other Jewish practices. Um, but as per pretty common Jewish tradition, conflicting practices and texts were simply accepted as Judaism evolved. This is something that people often struggle with when they first start studying these topics. How can these things coexist when they seemingly are in direct opposition? They just do. The line, you shall not eat anything with its blood, you shall not practice divination or soothsaying of Leviticus 19.26 seems damning. It really does. But, however, according to Sanhedrin 66a, it is referring, for example, to those who divine and receive guidance according to what happens to a weasel, to birds, or to fish. It further expands with Mishnah. Also liable to be executed by stoning is one who desecrates Shabbat by performing a matter that is for its intentional performance, one is liable to receive uh, karet, and for its unwitting performance, one is obligated to bring a sin offering. Gemara. By inference, there is another matter that is the desecration of Shabbat, and it is prohibited by the Torah, but for its unwitting performance, one is not obligated to bring a sin offering, nor does one receive karet for its intentional performance. According to the commentary of Ibn Ezra, it was an Egyptian custom to offer sacrifices to demons, and if one has not dashed the blood against the altar in the name of God, it is apparent that one is eating in the name of demons. For this reason, the commandment is juxtaposed, do not believe in omens. The Egyptians used to eat on blood and stray after the demons. The Canaanites used to believe in omens. And it's propitious times. That word somehow always seems to get me. So Ibn Ezra's commentary leads us to a common ground. Do not take on the practices of other cultures and religions, which is a very common feature of Judaism. Um... And I say very common feature as in this is something we very often perpetuate and believe and say time and time again, even when we know historically we have taken on the practices of the majority religions and groups around us. It's, and this is my personal belief system here, I want to make it very clear, this is my personal thing. I think that when we look towards the people who came before us who say, don't ever take on those practices. It's a call to stay true to Judaism, to stay true to who we are, and this fear that we will eventually be lost through forcible assimilation. Even though we all know that in reality, Jews have taken on certain practices that exist because of forced assimilation into the larger group. To continue, 
Some rabbis have even grander ideas of what a soothsayer was, and by extent, the act of soothsaying, what that would be. As referenced in Leviticus, the sages taught, to quote, the sages taught, what is the definition of the soothsayer mentioned in verse, there shall not be found among you a soothsayer, Deuteronomy 18.10. Rabbi Shimon says, this is one who applies seven types of semen, zechor, to one's eye in order to perform sorcery, Sanhedrin 65b, 19. So while Rabbi Shimon was an undoubtedly wise rabbi, his beliefs regarding soothsaying do not line up with the practices of any modern practitioners that I know of, nor did it apply to the, as far as I can find, documented methodologies practiced by Jews of the time. I also want to specify that when Rabbi Shimon says seven types of semen, he is in fact referring to the semen of seven different species not just from seven different people. So, I know this is a favorite of certain people. I may have made videos on it before, I've made comments on it before, but I'm just going to move on and let you think about that. Now, according to Sepharia, Leviticus 19.31 states, Do not turn to ghosts and do not inquire of familiar spirits to be defiled by them. Nope, it would appear my do not disturb has stopped working. I am the Lord your God, which is frequently used... Uh, as a line that is supposed to ban all divination, right? However, according to the commentary, the word yadua, I'm sorry, yidoni, is one who puts a bone of an animal, of the bone of an animal, the name of which is yadua, in his mouth, and the bone speaks, Sanhedrin 65b. So there's different translations here. And this is consistent, this translation is consistent with Chabad's interpretation of the line, which says, do not turn to the idols called of or yudoni. According to Chabad, the ninth prohibition is what we are forbidden for performing, and that's the practice of yudoni. It is also a form of idolatry, in which the person takes a bone from the burn, bird called yadua, places it in his mouth, burns incense, utters certain words, and performs certain acts, until he reaches a state similar to unconsciousness, when he goes into a deep sleep and predicts the future. Our sages said, Yudoni is when the person places a bone from the Yadwa in his mouth and it speaks by him itself. Now, even here, we no longer see that sweeping declaration against all forms of divination by specifically looking at what they meant by it. And this is all interpretation here. This interpretation says you, you no longer have a general prohibition. And to quote, do not think that this prohibition is in the category of general prohibition. The very same scholars that discussed the permissibility were the very same that acted upon it. Dennis continues with, Talmudic sages were extremely sen sensitive to serendipitous omens and were avid observers of the stars and the trees and the behavior of birds and other selected animals. Bible verses elicited from children can be read as signs. Maimonides, the Ramban, who was famously opposed to mysticism, believed that astrology was the divination that was called against in Leviticus 19.26. Though, though his commentaries often included arguments against magical practices, he, that's due to his typically rationalistic position, he went as far as to rail against other Talmudic scholars of the time who did study the stars, who did study astrology. Now, in many interpretations, the Tanakh forbids, and I'm going to read a specific list here, Nahash, as a noun, Nahash translates as snake, and as a verb, it literally translates as hissing. The verbal form can be extended to mean whispering. Onan, literally translates as clouds, possibly referring to nephomancy. 
Uh, kashaf is of ambiguous meaning, meaning either from a root meaning mutter or from a compound of the words kash, herb, and hapala using, meaning herb user. The Septuagint renders the same phrase as pharmakeia, uh, poison or poisoner. Uh, being a balob literally means master of spirit. The corresponding parts of the Septuagint refers to egastrimus. This term is also used to describe the witch of Endor, whom Saul enlists to summon the shade of Samuel in 1 Samuel 28. Being a yidoni, literally meaning gainer of information from ghosts uh, through the ritual above. Being a doresh el hatmetim, literally means one who questions corpses. Kasam kesem, literally means distributes distributions. Chaber cheber, literally means join joining. Now this list is courtesy of Wikipedia. Courtesy of Wikipedia, it was easy to copy and paste it that way. Um, and this list appears pretty formidable and extensive, but its overall impact is quite low on practitioners of divination in the modern era. The references are against the use of dead bodies, which is very much in line with the beliefs around in Judaism about dead bodies being ritually impure. If you are not, uh, if you haven't already listened to my episodes on death, I did a three-part series on it that I highly recommend, both on the blog and the podcast. So, and it's also pretty clear that it's against adoption of acts from other religions. The main issue found within the act of divination is attempting to know the will of God and subverting it through the use of divination. Rabbi Jonathan Zacks, Jonathan Sachs expands on how in Judaism we believe that we cannot predict the future when it comes to human beings. We make the future by our choices. The script has not yet been written. The future is radically open. Even our prophets did not accurately tell the future at all times. Rather, their speaking of the future was, in many cases, a means of warning us of a possible outcome if we should not change our behavior. There are many stories of prophets making declarations only for their declarations to be thwarted through prayer. And we find the conclusion regarding worries about divination are threefold. Defiling the dead, abandoning Judaism to practice other religions, and allowing divination to make our futures rather than acting with the free will that we are meant to act with in Judaism. In all actuality, arguments about divination's halachic validity did nothing to stop Jews from practicing divination. And I say this because... Uh, Tanakh exegesis, right, studying the texts specifically is valid, deeply important. And I follow many biblical scholars, Torah scholars, Talmud scholars, and there are always going to be other interpretations. And whether or not you come to the conclusion that divination is outright forbidden 100% of the time, no matter what, or you come to a conclusion that there are specific prohibitions against certain things, or the thing that it doesn't actually apply, it doesn't actually forbid anything from what we do, regardless of what your conclusion is, I actually don't believe that it's as important as we make it out to be because in reality, Jewish tradition and Jewish practice has continued and has existed either way. Regardless of certain prohibitions, divination has lived. Whether or not... um, whether or not you believe in it, as we've progressed, experienced oppression, and assimilated, we have lost our methods that we previously had. We've created new ones and adopted newer ones as a result of assimilation and also as a result of fighting against assimilation. And whether or not you agree that divination is halakhically permissible, it is, in many ways, a deeply Jewish practice. And there are as many ways of divination as there are stars. If you think about it, you can do it. As long as you assign value to what you see, you are in charge of interpreting it. With that in mind, I'll only be going over a select few kinds of divination. 
Now, not all of them were encouraged by biblical Jews, and not all of them are practiced today, because again, this is not an exhaustive list. I also want to remind you that these forms of divination can also exist outside of Judaism. As Judaism has evolved as a minority religion for the entirety of our history, our practices have been influenced by those around us as we were forced to assimilate, and our practices have been adopted by others. Um, So you're going to see these things appear in other places, especially where Jews have lived for a long time. So if you, a non-Jew, practice this, it's not that one of us stole it from another, which I think is really important to say. I'm not going to say that these are all closed Jewish practices because they're not. It's just important to understand that each community came up with their own methodologies that are specific to those communities. So if you are not a Jew and you find similarity or familiarity within what I'm talking about, yeah, of course, that's totally normal. So I want to start with one of the most pervasive forms of divination within Judaism, which is dream interpretation. We first encounter dream interpretation with the Torah as Jacob interacts with Hashem and his dreams. Throughout the Torah, we witness Jacob and Joseph receive divine prophecy through dreams, with Joseph's life being saved by his ability to interpret the dreams of others. To quote Brachot 55a, a dream is not interpreted, a dream not interpreted is like a letter not read. As long as it is not interpreted, as long as it is not interpreted, it cannot be fulfilled, and the interpretation of a dream creates its meaning. The Talmud states that each dream requires interpretation, like any form of divination. Without interpretation, it is meaningless. This belief system, in my opinion, applies to all divination. Without interpretation, a tarot card is just a picture, a pendulum just a swinging rock, and a dream just a collection of visions without meaning. The meaning lies solely within our interpretation. Brachot 57b states that a dream is one-sixteenth of prophecy. The chapter itself is dedicated to dreams, describing and assigning value to certain things appearing in dreams, from biblical figures to animals, wise rabbis, and fruits and vegetables. From a culture supposedly against the use of divination, it spends quite a bit of time discussing the use of it through dreams. For an in-depth look into Jewish dream interpretation, try the Jewish Dream Book, The Key to Opening the Inner Meaning of Your Dreams by Vanessa L. Ochs. I think it's a really helpful book. It makes dream interpretation very easy and accessible, though there are obviously other books on the matter. So what's the next one? The next one is, of course, astrology. The study of the cosmos is incredibly important within Judaism. We have a lunar solar calendar, which you can read more about on my blog. I might do an episode on it. If you're interested, let me know. We have zodiac signs, and our term for luck is named after the stars. The Orthodox Union writes, In Judaism, astrology is not regarded as idol worship, even though the generic name for idol worship is Avodat Kochavim Um Mazalot, worship of the stars and the signs of the zodiac. From the Jewish perspective, the stars are not unrelated to the events on Earth. It is not irrelevant whether one was born on Pesach or Yom Kippur or Lag Be'omer or any particular day. Each day is special and has a unique imprint. The Orthodox Union also references how the Talmud states that if one is born under Mars, they are more likely to spill blood, as an example of natal placement. In Kabbalah, the the number 13 is believed to be auspicious as it demonstrates our ability to overcome the 12 zodiacs and live outside of the foretold restrictions set upon by the stars. For example, not all Taurians love luxury, not all Virgos are compulsive, etc. And I really love that specifically. I remember when I first uh, learned about, I knew of certain numbers, specialties, and certain 
thoughts about the number 13, but I remember when I specifically read about the number 13 as being representative of the human ability to transcend a possible future that is set before us. Something that is set before us does not necessarily have to define us. Um, Now, for more discussions regarding certain Jewish astrology, I do have a blog post talking about the Hebrew year, so you can read that there. Now, we're going to talk about casting lots. Casting lots, claromancy, was seen as a way of not only divining the future, but it was also a practical method of making decisions. Lots were cast frequently in batches of four, and the most consistent answer was seen as the correct interpretation. It could be used for yes or no questions, as well as open or further interpretation. While it was originally believed that the lots were stones or sticks, throughout the centuries it has evolved to use a wide variety of materials, including gems, slips of paper, knives, arrows, even dice. There is a actual guide written by someone named Mystic Mahmir uh, on how to make your own set. It's available for $5. I've used it before. I think it's very interesting, um, and it's, it's a nice one. So... The next one is one of my personal favorite forms of divination. I personally really, really love it. Um, And that is lead casting or molybdomancy. Now, I am not encouraging you to use actual lead. It is dangerous. There are other very low melting point metals that can be used instead. Or you can substitute for uh, wax. But I'm going to talk about the historical uses of it and the practice of molybdomancy. So in German, it's known as Bleigießen or lead pouring. In Yiddish, it's similarly known as uh, Bleigissen. And the true name is molybdomancy, as I said. Now, this method asks you to melt down a small portion of lead and quickly pour it into cold water. Then you look at the shapes that the lead has caused in the water and you can interpret them. But it's not just to look for the future or ask a question. Uh, Molybdomancy has been used in certain Jewish circles, particularly Ashkenazi Jewish circles, uh, to remove the evil eye. But it exists all over. I'm just most familiar with specific German Jewish practices about it because that's where I've done the most research. Um, For both both Jewish and non-Jewish Germans, uh, Bleigissen was a specific tradition around New Year's or Silvester. Uh, and you can, you up until very recently, you could buy kits in Germany and they would come with lots of little different shapes. I used to love the mushroom, but you can get mushroom. There was a pig, uh, all symbols of good luck within Germany, not specifically within Jewish culture. Um, but you melt it down and you pour it into cold water and you look at what comes before you. I've done a video on it before um, and I was using tiny little tin pellets. Um, but I also keep and reuse my water over and over again, so I'm not putting it back out there. Okay, so the next one is great for book lovers. Bibliomancy. Now, this traditional divination method is very simple. Open a book, preferably a prayer book or a sacred text, and pick a line. You can pick a number before you do it. You can. I know someone who does. Uh, they pick a number between one and then the last page of the book for the first one, then their second number is uh, either the number of words or the paragraph and then the number of words. So you could do 15, three, four. So I could open a book. Here, I'll open this one right here. So I'll go to page 15. Here's some ASMR sounds for you. Paragraph three, number four. This one says, behold, Actually, this is a line. This is uh, Psalm 11. So 
Behold, the wicked are bending their bow. They placed their arrow on the bowstring to shoot in the dark at the upright of heart. I'll deal with that divination later. So intentionally, you pick a line to interpret. You pick a word to interpret. Um, some people use dice to pick out sacred to pick out the numbers and the lines, but that's entirely optional. Others choose a number in their head before they open the book. Now, a traditional method includes looking at where the thumb lands on the page naturally. And it was often believed that if a child were to spout a line from the Torah, it could be interpreted as either a good or bad omen, depending on the verse that they randomly choose to recite. It is also commonly believed that when a person was gravely ill, opening the Tanakh and adding uh, the first seen name on that page to so their name could help avert the decree against them. We've talked about this in the episode on death of adding another name to your Hebrew name as a means of thwarting death if possible. Now, candle divination is one I talked about a little bit in my last episode, which is about candle magic. And this is talking about the traditional, the tradition of Nel uh, Neshamot, or candle, soul candles, and for centuries it was said if that the candle burned out before it reached the end, the person would not last through the year, but if they relit it and it burned all the way after doing a tshuva, they would be fine. Now this divination method is less frequent than others, but it's often applied during other times as well. Because we associate the candle with the human soul, it is used as a measuring rod for one's well-being. If a candle were to burn badly, break its glass, etc., it can be interpreted as representative of the state of a person's soul. But again, this one was far less common in uh, the past and much more common now. This is a much more modern practice. Now, this one is, I would say, one of the least lesser form, lesser kosher forms of donation, and that is hepatoscopy, and that is the interpretation of uh, inspecting a liver. So this one is the least kosher practice on those list. As Judaism seeks to cause little harm to animals as possible, the practicing of slaughtering an animal purely for the sake of divination was not widely accepted or practiced. However, because livers typically have a gleaming, shining surface, it could be used to interpret the future. I also want to note that one of the reasons that this one was so frowned upon was because it was entrail reading was practiced by non-Jews quite often. And again, we see this same belief of don't do what non-Jews do. So then there's lacanomancy and hydromancy, and this is the art of reading oil in water or water in oil, and this can be traced back to biblical times. Joseph himself used a silver chalice to divine the future, as quoted by some, um, and it can be found in Genesis 44.5. It is the very, the very one from which my master drinks and which he uses for divination. It is also believed that wine can be used in the place of water, and some Jewish practitioners have discussed using blessed wine from Shabbat or Havdalah, Though I have been unable to find uh, historical documentation of that. I want to make that one clear. That one's something I've heard anecdotally. I've heard it talked about um, by other uh, Jews, but I haven't found any sort of documentation. And that's another thing I want to mention really quick, um, though I still have a couple other things to talk about. There's a fantastic book that I happen to not have on my desk at the moment. Rituals... Ritual Medical Lore of Sephardic Women, Sweetening the Spirits and Healing the Sick is a fantastic book that specifically does interviews with Sephardic women all over, and there a lot of it you can see the specific discussions of how women experienced a different life in a way than a lot of men, and how Jewish traditions that are deeply Jewish may not appear in documentation because it was in the women's realm, in the women's sphere. If you read my blog post on the evil eye, you'll see a lot of that because a lot of these 
folk practices did not get put down in the official literature. They just existed in the realm of women. So for some of this, it is a little bit hard because I will talk to people, I'll hear stories, I'll read and have the knowledge that's passed down, but it's very difficult to find it written down in academic sourcing, which can be really frustrating. And I also very much believe in sourcing, so it's hard to balance those two experiences and to create something that is both evidence-based and also acknowledging of historical misogyny in the way that women's stories have been pressed down. So, a a fairly recent superstition is about the dreidel. So you can use a dreidel to predict your future. Oh no, I have to sneeze. Okay, we're back, sorry. Um, So spinning a dreidel for an answer is pretty, pretty simple. If you have a worse luck with the dreidel, expect a difficult year. If you find you're coming up lucky, that can foreshadow you as well. So Gimel is yes, um, Nun is no, Hey is maybe, Shin is try again. Um, And I'm using the diaspora dreidel for this one here. So that one's a pretty common one. I did a post on this one, a pretty new one. I mean, I didn't post on this one this year because I find it fascinating. So at Havdalah, the closing ceremony of Shabbat, it is traditional to gaze into one's fingernails using the light of the candle. Though there are many rationalizations for why we do this, our nails always grow, so we look at them, so we might always grow too, or the one that, you know, that kind of thing. Or we look at it because they are always growing and we are always growing, or they continue and the week always continues, etc., etc. There's a fantastic article that uh, I will link, obviously, but I could only grab a small snippet of this because it's very long. But they say, the only one that satisfactorily explains the varying attitudes and the various rationalizations is the one which regards looking at the nails as a means of divination. We know that has always been a common practice of a nation by looking up bright and shiny objects. Further, we know that the time of the outgoing of the Sabbath has been and is still considered an appropriate time to ask for a favorable and lucky week. It is therefore not at all out of place for the people to practice some form of a nation at the outgoing, I'm sorry, some form of divination at the outgoing of the Sabbath. So I have never actually done this sort of divination. I'm not great when it comes to looking at shiny objects for it, but um, I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was another area where we see a sort of rationalization of Jewish practices in order to fit into a more modern, quote unquote, rational world. So Now, I want to talk about one that I did not write on my blog post, and that's about coffee reading. So I grew up reading coffee, coffee grounds specifically. Um, We always called it Turkish coffee in my household growing up, but I know there are many different names. I talked to a friend of mine, and they were like, no, 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 it is not Turkish coffee. It's Cypriot coffee. And everyone calls it a different name. So I grew up with my family calling it Turkish coffee. If we're going to say it in English, it was just cafe. So the way you do this is you use a small uh, coffee pot. Again, my family used the term finjan. And you put the coffee, you put it in preferably into a clear glass in my family. I want to make it clear. I'm talking about my personal experiences here. I know everyone has their own methodologies for reading. We used clear glasses. And a, once you finish drinking it, you place a saucer on top, place your thumbs on top with your hands facing outwards. You swirl three times towards the heart and then you flip towards yourself. And when you're doing that, you are either asking a question, imbuing the cup with something, and then when you feel ready, when you feel drawn to it, you remove the cup, sometimes there's a suction, and you can read the coffee grounds within the cup 
and also the ones that are left on the tasse, on the, on the, um, on the saucer. I'm losing the terminology here. And that is one of my favorite personal forms of divination. Um, it was it's the one that I think of the most when I think of what I grew up with. And it's common in a lot of Jewish households and people don't think too much of it generally. So that's one that I didn't mention earlier, but is very common in a lot of Jewish communities and homes. So let's look at practical methodology. When it comes to actually performing divination, there are so many methods that are being employed by modern Jewish practitioners. Some begin with a prayer, usually beginning with baruch atta, etc., etc., while others will light and bless candles, light incense, uh, invoke angels, say the Shema, etc., etc. Some, it's far more casual, as in you just kind of do it. You just pick it up and go for it. And some, for so many, it also depends on the context of the divination. When speaking to different Jewish practitioners who utilize it, I was given various methodologies that vary by what kind of divination is being performed and for whom. Some will bless their tarot decks, books, wine, uh, lots for casting and candles. Others will pray to Hashem for dreams, while others rely solely on their personal interpretation as opposed to divine intervention. And I think it's always interesting because people ask me, how do you do it? And it's a little difficult for me to give any sort of practical advice because one, I'm not a huge fan of teaching specifically. I don't mind describing as I did, but I don't like to teach in general. And it's also difficult because so much of what I do and so much of how I experience Judaism is how I grew up to experience it. Why, how do I read coffee cups? I just do. I remember being handed the coffee before. I was far too young to drink it myself, but they'd hand me a cup and say, what do you see? And this sort of experience is, is hard for me to translate into a sort of lesson plan or instruction manual. And I know it's like that for a lot of Jews. If you have a specific methodology of divination that I did not include, I would love to hear it. Please do let me know. You can uh, leave it on my Instagram in a comment. That's a great way to do that. I would really appreciate a comment on Instagram. Those are super helpful, not only for the algorithm, but also so I can see them. Because Instagram has finally, finally made it so you can uh, sort through your comments. And I'm so excited about that. What else? I think, I'm, I think I've come to the end. I think we're almost at the end of it. Let me see. Yep, my script is over. Okay, there is one last thing to say. And that is, Jews have been practicing divination since the days of old. And as we move, move forward, we are revitalizing old methods and finding new and improved ways to honor ourselves, our ancestors, and Hashem through these methods. And I think it's important that we allow ourselves to experience the things that we want to experience and to have these discussions about, about everything, really. Um, okay, so... I am going to start with the end credits. Before we get to all of our sources, which of course you know I do, I want to say a huge thank you to uh, Maddie Star one two three four five six seven uh, for their really nice review. It made me really happy to read. I love reading the reviews; they mean so much to me. Let me pull up my Spotify because now you can actually rate on Spotify as well. So I can read the comments you leave on Apple Podcasts. But um, wow! Oh my god. I'm going to cry. We have 82 five-star reviews on Spotify. So if you listen on Spotify and you haven't left a review, it would be amazing if you could. I'm, I'm honestly flabbergasted. I think last time we only had something in the 20s. So, wow. 
Um, I'm so excited about that. Uh, reviews, subscribes, downloads, follows, all of those are hugely helpful for boosting the podcast. The podcast is one of the only things that I do online that has any sort of direct monetization. So it's one of the easiest ways to actually support me. I know the ads are annoying, um, but they are so helpful for me personally. It's one of the only places where I get any sort of direct monetization. Like Instagram is not monetized. You can't, I don't get money from Instagram. I don't get money from my Twitter, etc. So uh, let's see. If you want to stay up to date with me, follow my Instagram. Uh, my Twitter is The Jewitches. I also have my personal Twitter, which is Zoe Kobe, which is very active on there. And then there's, of course, my website where you can sign up for emails. I promise I don't email that much, max five times a month. So let's get on to my sources. So my sources are myjewishlearning.com, article divination, chabad.org, negative commandment, uh, fine singer, soul, the custom of looking at the fingernails at the outgoing of the Shabbat, which is from the Hebrew Union College annual. Um, it's on JSTOR, which I recommend. There's chabad.org on, on not predicting the future, the Jewish encyclopedia on lots, Judaism-101, on ou.org, on the significance of astrology and Judaism. We have Jewish Encyclopedia on Bibliomancy in the forward.com slash culture on making soul candles. And if you want to learn more about soul candles, I recommend my last episode. All right, y'all. I will see you all next week. Bye.